coaching in sales is not pipeline reviews. That's not often That's understood, yep. but it's not, yeah. right? I'm glad we agree on that. Yep. And and the challenge is sales leaders. I mean, I can I'm sympathetic. I've been there. I was one for a long time. We're are already asked and tasked, I should say, with so many things that they're doing and it's only gotten worse you know how about those 70 fields in the crm that that your right. team's not filling out right so how do you make sure coaching's happening two things have to be as part of your enablement framework one teach them how to coach if you're not doing leadership enablement for revenue enablement excuse me revenue leaders yeah. and go to market leaders then don't expect them to know how to go be effective leaders and coaches if you're not investing in them number two do you have an actual coaching framework in place that goes back to what I said before, that can also be tracked and measured. It's such an old, worn out phrase, especially in sales, we treasure what we measure, blah, blah, blah. But it's true. If you don't have that coaching framework, you can, I'll go into a client, this happened a couple of times this year. You ask them, do you have a coaching culture here? Oh yeah, we do, we do, we do. But then you can't find any evidence that anybody's been doing any in recent times. And I, and I think it's because people sincerely want to coach. They understand the importance of coaching. They probably do believe in a coaching culture, but you got to have some enablement and some measurement in place to make sure it's happening. In this episode, we dive into the world of customer journey enablement with seasoned consultant, Paul Butterfield, founder of Revenue Flywheel. Throughout the interview, we discuss the core principles behind buyer-centric operations and the pivotal role that enablement plays as a function in helping to drive organizational success. Paul shares his perspective on why it's critical that we prioritize enablement when we're building out our sales strategies. He also talks about the dangers of relying solely on self-reported data. He gets into some examples where he illustrates the consequences of inadequate outreach and engagement when teams lack poor enablement. And towards the end of the interview, Paul draws on his extensive experience as a consultant and reveals some essential elements clients typically look for when they're hiring consultants. And we wrap up by going through the customer enablement framework that Paul designed. Before getting into tech and mm -hmm. having an illustrious career, all of you can check out his LinkedIn profile, big logos, talking Microsoft, HP, Intuit, GE, Vonage, some household names there that he mm -hmm. has really helped drive channel sales, sales enablement for. Um, but before you embarked on that great career, you built out a large and thriving consulting practice of your own for many years that you had. Uh, but today, in most recent cases, and what we want to talk about right now is mm -hmm. Revenue Flywheel. The last four months you, you shared with me is when you really went full full time with this uh, with your practice. You've started, I think, seven or eight years ago. Many so many yeah. years. So was it? Were you doing sort of a moonlight thing originally? And what brought the transition on in the last four or five months? It really was a moonlight thing. In fact, it's funny. Uh, my very first client, the reason that I even set up the LLC and started doing it was a former employer. And you, and you mentioned GE. GE had recruited me away from this employer and we left on good terms. And I think it was probably six months later, they contacted me and said, hey, would love to have you continue doing some of the work that you were doing here. Would you be willing to do it on an as needed basis? So that was, you know, that was what really got the ball rolling. And and for most of the years that you mentioned, that was the nature of my work. People that I had worked with or within my network that knew of my work, knew of the successes that that the companies that I had worked with, you know, had with the different types right. of enablement or methodology, and they would come to me. But I enjoy that part of enablement and sales for that matter. I, I like the parts where you're coming in and you're figuring out which are the right Legos and you're putting that pile of Legos together and then you're starting mm -hmm. to snap them together and you're starting to you know, take shape and see. That's the fun part to me. It's that analyzing, the building, all of that. 
and and so that was just a long-term dream to be able to focus on working with companies that are in that stage or trying to figure out some of these big questions, help right. them do that. And um, so finally, this was uh, there was a couple of reasons where this year just make ended up making sense to take that jump. Well, a lot of important lessons there uh, that I don't want to skip past too quickly. Mm -hmm. um, not to bring it back to me, but I think a similar sort of start where my first client was my, you know, my former boss, a friend of yeah, my former yeah. boss, I should Same say, thing. Mm -hmm. right? And so it's it's being familiar with your work, doing good work, mm -hmm. building that track record. And having that hidden board, uh, which I like to talk mm -hmm. about a lot, which is basically the, those that maybe don't have direct control over your career in some cases. So maybe it wasn't a boss. Maybe it could have been someone on the auxiliary, but they still mm -hmm. see your work as a, as a general body of work, if you will, and mm -hmm. think that, you know, hey, can you can you keep helping me out? I think that's the best case scenario where you want to be at, mm -hmm. where you're not kind of forcing it. So those that are looking to make that jump or have some sort of ambition you know, start where you are, use what you have, build a good mm -hmm. track record, you know, establish good network and connections and nurture that network. So now you you fast forward to the last four or five months. What's it, what has it been like now that you've been solely focused, uh, uh, you know, on the business? So for those that are in that stage, just mm -hmm. jumping off, it's the new year. We're, we're recording this here two days after Christmas ourselves. So uh, those that are kind of thinking of the new year, starting a new venture, what are the, the first priorities that you focus on in, in building your practice this time, knowing that you did this before? Right. Well, as you mentioned, when I did it before, it was it was a very different sort of consulting, although you're still building consulting practice. So I, right. I you know, like definitely some lessons that I brought forward. And one of those was come into it with a, a, a business plan. Even though I'd had years to think about this, I'd been doing this kind of work on the side for years, been doing it full-time for companies for just as long, I still was not ready to go until I had actually worked out what is not only my business plan, but also then took that plan to some others who I respected mm, and good. said, this is, this is my analysis. This is what I'm seeing. You know me, you know my work, you know the market. What do you think? I also invested in a, um, I mean, it was an online resource. So it wasn't, wasn't, you know, super expensive, but I did pay for some actual market analysis as well as to what was going on where I, you know, went through with Interesting. my ICPs and all of that. Right. And just, again, wanted to get an objective. Somebody didn't even know me third party review. Right. So validating. Uh, so the, that was all part of it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Some of it validating, some of it, frankly, learning. And right. and I'm still learning. Um, you know, right now I we we got the website up, for example. And I think it's a it's 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 a good website. There's a lot that I like about it. But I also in the months since it went live, which was April, um, have some things that I'm going to be changing that I'm working with again. Somebody's got a little more expertise. I'm going to be making some changes to, Is that it, more to the optimize it. Or I would imagine it, it, it's the messaging. It's also a little bit the flow, uh, okay. just because I'm still learning too. Right. But but that was that was the big thing for me is if I was going to jump out and do this, I wanted to have a plan as opposed to when I built my first consulting practice, I sort of fell into it and things turned out OK. But but this time we like I said, it was a, more, a little more intentional and uh, better planned. Good. Yeah, but you know, I Mike know. Tyson said, everybody has a plan until you get punched get in the punched face. In the so again, yeah, right. Exactly. So, so I mean, already <laughs> making adjustments six, seven months in. Well, that's the thing, though, when you're starting any venture, I'd imagine you get inundated and have goal diffusion where you're just don't where do I focus my energy and time? Mm -hmm. It's just me at this stage. And 
you know, do I tinker with the website? Do I work on the messaging? Do I validate mm -hmm. my market assumptions or learn from what's really happening in the market? Like, where do you invest your money, your time, your energy? Right. And I think that's what keeps us up at night when we're first starting out is what I'm doing today, getting me 1% better? Is it getting me one step closer and mm -hmm. these sorts of things? And the fact that you've been down the road, which might have been different, following into a different field as well. Um, still, a lot of, you have lessons that uh, a lot of us don't. And so we definitely mm -hmm. want to learn from that what we can. So um, let's let's talk a little bit about the enablement side of things. Now, Revenue Flywheel, your, your focal point is to help mm -hmm. organizations with their revenue enablement strategies. Can you tell me a little bit more about what sure. Revenue Flywheel's mission is? So the name is probably worth maybe just digging into that just for a minute. Yeah. Um, I first read about the flywheel concept as it has to do with business, at least in Jim Collins book, uh, Good to Great. I'm pretty sure that's where I first read about it, which has been out for a while. Yeah. And and over the years, as I've worked in sales leadership and and, and then started building on enablement uh, at, at a few different companies, one of the things that I observed is that enablement, when it's done properly, actually is not sales enablement. It is working along all mm -hmm. points that impact a customer's journey. And that most starts pre-top of the funnel. That probably starts, well, it doesn't probably, it does often start with the product, product marketing. But then you are working a single enablement strategy across all of those go-to-market teams. And you are aligning a lot of seemingly small things, but when it's done correctly, when it's executed consistently, you create that, that flywheel effect. You create a, an elevated customer experience that's really bigger than, than maybe that looks like the sum of all those little changes that you've made are. Some of them are big changes, let's be clear. But but a lot of times companies are finding that even just getting better alignment between those GTM teams makes a big difference. So that's where the name came from. And and then that's why we talk about it as customer journey enablement. Um, you know, was, I'm not saying that's what the profession should be called. Uh, you know, there's revenue enablement, there's sales enablement, now GTM enablement. But to me, right. when I'm talking right. with people who are not in enablement, and my ICPs are not enablement leaders, they are CROs, CMOs, founders, right. that that customer journey enablement seems to resonate better and generates better conversations as, as, as we try to talk about what the what the future state could be. And what I think I infer from that is mapping our people process tools to mm -hmm. how our buyers buy, to our you know, mm -hmm. customer-centric uh, strategy, right? So mm -hmm. often we create our sales process and our customer success process and our mm -hmm. outreach and you know top of funnel processes off of what is good and easy for us to do business as right. opposed to making it easy for us to do business with. And Agreed. I think it's, it's, a, it's a mind shift there. So one of the things for the audience, I want you to stick around for the rest of this conversation because at the end, uh, I'm going to ask Paul to unpack a customer journey enablement framework that he has that has, mm -hmm. I think, five pillars built into it. So we'll talk a little bit about that at the end so you guys can kind of pick some notes from what that framework looks like. Um, but in the meantime, you know, we throw the word enablement around a lot, uh, right. quite frankly. And I think if you asked 10 different people, you might get... 10 different definitions. Um, and for those that are not really um, attuned to enablement strategies, while it's, you know, it, it's not nothing new, mm -hmm. is it just a fancy word for training, really? Like, how, how do you define enablement? The way that it's sometimes executed, it is just a fancy word for training. But in my experience, they're not doing it right. Right, Training right, makes up right. an element of it. If you think back, you know, again, that concept of customer journey enablement, what is going on 
as product and product marketing are thinking about, are they looking at the customer? Are we creating features because they're cool or because we can, or are we creating things that are going to add greater value? What do we know from our existing customers? What do we know from process? And I'm not saying this isn't going on within product groups. It often is, but is that then being tapped? Is it being brought through into the marketing collateral and the materials? How is marketing talking about the product online? How are they talking about it in outreach? All of this before it maybe even gets to an SDR or salesperson, but it impacts directly the types of conversation that those SDRs and salespeople are set up to have. Because if we focus a lot on features, if we focus a lot on look at us, look at us, it doesn't leave them with nearly as much fertile ground when they do get a prospect on the phone, as opposed to if we're leading with use cases, if we're leading with how others uh, are succeeding and creating future states and uh, you know improving their business, et cetera, um, then that sets up a very different kind of sales conversation. So that's that that's one example that happens to be at the the top of the funnel and in those early stages of funnel where those groups and how they're thinking and talking consistently. Because like you said, how many companies talk about, oh, where are they in our sales process? That's yeah, that's exactly, a very exactly. that's very. a very that's a very inward looking point of view when in fact our buyers are highly educated self-motivated, have their own problem, their own things they're trying to solve for, and they probably couldn't care less if they even thought about our sales process. Right. So we, we, we've got to get past that. Well, you know, I, that's why I, I asked the question, because I think that's where a lot of us mm-hmm. default to when we think about enablement is we think about how do we better train our employees, our frontline staff on how to, you know, execute people processes and use the technology Mm -hmm. and so forth. And, you know, when you zoom out and look at the sort of components that would make up a sales enablement organization, you know, greater focus on content uh, Mm -hmm. externally and externally to your point, uh, Mm -hmm. but also feedback loops. I think Mm -hmm. to what you're saying about bringing it through to me is being the being the glue that makes uh, it connects the dots, if you will. And that's you know, sales operations, uh, I think, has a a flywheel effect as well, mm-hmm. or you should say revenue operations, GTM right. operations. And right. I, I think sometimes enablement will maybe report into that organization sometimes. I don't know if you see that. What, from a reporting structure, what do you most often see the, rev- the revenue enablement teams reporting yeah. into? My personal experience that I, and I always recommend this is that reporting to the highest sales leader that makes sense, which is typically mm-hmm. going to be a chief sales or chief revenue officer, but not always. But mm-hmm. but but that is and because what revenue ops does and what the enablement team does are and must be complementary and very much in sync, but they're a very different type of motion. Right. So I, I'm not saying that enablement can't report to RevOps and be successful. I reported to an SVP of RevOps at Vonage, who was one of the um, one, one, one of the best leaders I've ever worked for. Uh, but but the other thing I'm looking at is the trend. And if you go back, you look at Forrester's annual state of enablement that they do now for, mm-hmm. I don't know what, going on 15 years maybe? The trend has been over time away from RevOps, away from marketing, and more and more reporting up and into senior sales leadership. So is that for uh, you know, there's my experience reasons but uh, or... I I think it's because you really as an enablement leader, you really need to be thinking like a sales leader. Hmm. Now, 
I don't know what it would be like to build enablement without having years in the trenches, carrying a, uh, you know, carrying a quota and leading teams that are carrying quotas. But I'm glad I had that. Right. And and so, but but I guess what I'm trying to say is, even if you don't come from that background, but you find yourself heading up an enablement program, still understand and learn how to think like a sales leader. And that doesn't mean that you necessarily are inspecting the pipelines and things the right. same way they are. But running forecasts. But and, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But you also need to be, have intelligent conversations about it. You also need to be able to understand and help them understand uh, you know, what's going on and being able to do effective analysis. All right. So we're seeing things that are dropping off between the qualified and, and, you know, second or third discovery sessions. Uh, why, why is that? Well, if, if you're not well-versed in sales and you haven't really invested in that, it's going to be a hard converse, difficult conversation Absolutely. to have. And, and too many folks in enablement are, are still too focused on, I, this isn't my phrase. I've heard it a few times, uh, smiley sheet, butts and seats and smiley sheets. Let's put it that way, uh, yeah. which are great metrics, right? Ooh, we feel great. We feel good. But ultimately, how do the sales leadership feel about it? How are we measuring it? What results are we seeing in the field as a result of the time that we took those sellers away for that, that training or time? But going back to your question of RevOps, to me, enablement, when it's done well, is really a hub. It's a hub for marketing, product marketing. They may or may not report to the same place. Right. RevOps, sales leadership, customer success to all come together. And enablement is working with those groups because they all bring different expertise. They bring different points of view. They bring different strengths. They're working to help synthesize that. And most often, enablement is then taking what the group puts together that last mile to a salesperson, to a customer success rep, et cetera. Got it. Got it. Now, the feedback loop that is important to me on this is, and I think it is to you as well, is the customer <laughs> feedback loop that mm -hmm. we put in place. Um, and, and that's at all points, whether mm -hmm. it's in, you know, product marketing, marketing, mm -hmm. right? At every stage in the flywheel, there's a touch mm -hmm. point where we should be, get, should be, that word that gets us in trouble yep. sometimes, but yep. uh, it would be ideal where we would have some sort of feedback loops back into enablement who could enrich the content, enrich the processes, enrich the strategy, right? Based on what we're hearing from the actual voice of the customer. Uh, mm -hmm. Talk to me about that side of the you know, enablement strategy. How much time do you see orgs spending doing customer surveys, customer interviews, mm -hmm. Uh, just looking at that data, engaging with customers and really getting a firsthand sort of feedback loop, if you will, uh, into the process. I don't know exactly how to answer how much time, but I would love to share some things I've observed in the ways that they're doing it as well. Yeah. For example, very often companies are having a, sell, a salesperson self-report the reasons for win-loss. And would you be surprised to hear that the most oft given response in my experience is lack of features, which, which isn't really helpful right. or, or no compelling event that that's, that, that is probably my top pet peeve is when I see that. And I'll add to that, no to that same category. Yes. Yeah. When yeah. they do choose competition mm -hmm. and there's a forced selection, mm -hmm. The, the the research says that the first company you list in mm -hmm. that drop down is mm -hmm. the one that will be most selected 
-hmm. even if it wasn't the actual competitor that you lost to or you competed to in that deal. We have a separate yeah. interview here on the podcast with the founder of a company called Closed, and they have a platform they've built to collect you know, mm -hmm. win-loss analysis feedback mm -hmm. from the client firsthand. Um, and that I feel like is what is the missing piece in a lot of our sales strategies, marketing strategies right. is, is maybe it's not enough time, maybe it's not the right question, but there isn't enough focus, there isn't enough uh, inputs in from the client other than what we're inferring from mm -hmm. data like what you're talking about, right? When we look at the yeah. CRM data, we come on, we, we know our CRM data is not clean. We can't right. trust 100%. Yeah. And, and I'm glad you mentioned that. I've actually been a closed customer. And I've ah. also been a customer of competitors of theirs that do the same thing. Very good. And, and so I'm really glad you mentioned it because that's one of the things I wanted to bring, bring up as well. Self-reporting has a lot, and I think we've probably hammered that pretty well for this, for this yeah, episode. Yeah. There's a lot of challenges with self-reporting. But one that I also believe comes into play is most prospects or customers are actually nice people themselves. Yeah. And they're probably going to hold back a little bit if a salesperson is even brave enough to ask, what should I have done differently or what could we have done differently, right? Why'd and mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. And, and my experience in working with third parties is a couple of things. Number one, they are a neutral third party. It's a safer space for a customer or prospect to really share without hurting anybody's feelings. And number two, there is a science. I mean, I don't know the science, but I've learned this of my career. There is a science to how you ask questions and how you write surveys. And unless your salespeople are, you know, have that training, which probably they don't, um, they're probably not even asking effective questions. And 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 you could maybe develop that in-house expertise, but when you've got companies that this is what they do and they have a proven track record of it. I remember one of the companies that we worked with was not only was it win loss, but they also would get into how close did you, how close did you come to winning? Right. So were uh, you like, it wasn't so or, binary. You know, okay. Yeah. It, it wasn't just the binary. No, it was like, I think it was on a five scale. So on a five scale, how badly did you lose? And on a five scale, how well did you win? Right. Did you just, did you, did, did the product sell despite your poor sales efforts? Right. All the way up to you, you really floored us with, with the experience. So I think that's also valuable to understand is the dynamics behind it and, and, and trying to learn from that. Oh, yeah, I agree 100% with the questions. We know from net promoter score research that that is mm -hmm. foundationally the 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 way and who and the how and mm -hmm. all that around the questions is, is paramount. But yeah, mm -hmm. I, I think trying to get those feedback channels to form a good customer journey uh, mm -hmm. is important. Some of the things along the way that are important that we've talked about in our conversations are things like our outreach and how mm -hmm. poor that is when enablement isn't tuned up, when demos mm -hmm. are not ran effectively, right? Mm -hmm. The handoff from sales to CS. Um, mm -hmm. Take us there. Take us into the weeds a little bit in those in those areas. What do you mm -hmm. see as lacking? And maybe what are some of the solutions that are put in place when you have a proper enablement you know, team or strategy? Sure. Let's start with what you had talked about, the outreach. Mm -hmm. You probably get a lot of outreach. I certainly do. I imagine a lot quick of your question. Do as quick well. question. And, Probably get yeah. five of them a day, <laughs> and then subject yeah, line. right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Quick question or yeah, yeah. terrible. And in 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 fact, the most bizarre one. I even went and created a John Belushi meme and posted it. I think I posted it on LinkedIn just recently. Yep, um, I, saw I it. actually had an, an outreach from an SDR that ended with seven heart emojis. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> 
I didn't even know what to do with that, right? So, uh, but but most of it's really got love bad, for you, Paul. I got love for you. Just take that. Yeah, I guess, I, I guess. Yeah. Um, I think I think my other favorite one is LinkedIn keeps suggesting we connect. Do you know why? You know, uh, yeah. Just and, and and I get it. It's it's tough out there. The stats you see are anywhere from thirty-eight to fifty percent of sellers are even hitting quota. Everybody's struggling. Everybody's trying, but that's not the way to do it. Right. Those those that outreach really needs to be focused on what you either know because you've got history and you've analyzed your customer base, or you reasonably expect someone like yourself, someone like myself, what are we worried about? What are we thinking about? How are we trying to grow our business? Whether we're in business for ourselves, whether we are a VP for a much larger company, something or some things are, are top of mind. Understand what those are. This is why it goes back to your, because who owns that data? Who owns ICP data? Who owns customer research product, product marketing? That's why I start with them. But as sellers, how is that being delivered? Excuse me, how is that being delivered to sellers and how are they effectively turning that into outreach that generates business conversations? Which leads me to the second part that you mentioned. So much of the outreach that we see is, hey, can I book you a demo? I'll buy you a Starbucks card if you'll do a demo. And really, what is the demo trying to do? It's watching you as a prospect while I'm demoing and hoping that your eyes light up at something you see. Again, where's the, the business tour. conversation? Yeah, it's it, it, it's a tour. It's look at us, look at us, look at us. Probably let off with a few more slides that say, look at us, look at us. Um, you know, hey, we logos. just raised our Series mm -hmm. C funding. Mm -hmm. Again, look at our I building. Know, why, we have a pretty building that we sit in. Yeah, look yeah. at our nice building. Yeah, we're going to look look at this building, which no one sits in anymore, which means we've Sorry got to, to make pass fun that of you guys, cost it's, over it's, to you. It's, it's, no, it's, it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> but 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 it is. It's 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 so it's very much as opposed to Derek, I work with a lot of founders. And here's two or three things that I hear a lot. Right. Any of those on your mind? It might be, I mean, I'm spitballing here, but but right. come to me ready to have a business conversation and come to me with enough acumen that you've developed about my field to be able to have. I don't expect you to know more about my business than I do. That's not reasonable. But I do expect you to have thought about it enough that you can help me think about it differently. And so... So let's move forward to our customer success. You know, customer success I'm seeing more and more often is becoming a revenue center. They may not take quota in the same way that sell. sometimes they do. Sometimes At Vonage, yep. mm -hmm. our North American CS team's quota was not much lower than our North American wow. mid-market sales AE's team. Um, but other companies I've seen, they'll maybe generate opportunities up to five or 10 K and then anything larger than that. They're really just kind of upsells, smaller upsells, and then they bring in, but no matter what it is, how is that CS team bringing value to the conversation? If it's just letting you know how many seats you're actually are using. Okay. That is, that is helpful. I suppose because you don't want to overpay for something, but how much better would it be if I understand as a customer success manager from the beginning of the relationship, why you bought from us? What is the current state that you're dealing with? What's the future state that you're trying to get to? And how are we part of that? Now, I've got things to talk to you about. Now, I have a little bit of an early warning system because if you're not achieving those goals, if you're not seeing those results, we want to figure out why way before renewals. You know, renewals, especially in the SaaS world, renewal cycle starts two minutes after they sign the contract. Yeah, absolutely. And 
and and how how are we bringing that relationship? And so this is why it's a chain. This is why it's all connected. Because if sales is having business conversations, they're collecting data, like I just talked about, to pass on to CS. If all they're doing is 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 just kind of ramming stuff through with a big discount at the end to get it done, they probably don't have a lot to give to the CS team. And that's that's why it's important that we're looking at this holistically. Yeah, I would I, the discovery call piece. Um, I worked for a strategy executive years ago, mm -hmm. and he wanted to relabel the name of our discovery calls, everything in the CRM and our sales engagement platform, everything mm -hmm. in our reporting, wanted to move away from the term discovery call or demo call in some cases mm -hmm. to proof point call. And we all kind of, mm. you know, giggled at it and rolled our eyes a little bit and like proof point call. What is this? You know, that's silly. That's not industry norm, these sorts of mm -hmm. things. And the point that he was making, and he drove this home consistently to the point where it did shape the blueprint that we followed in our our, our discovery calls. Uh, with the point that he was driving home was that when we do these initial calls, it should be mm -hmm. to be proving to the client, showing them how mm -hmm. and demonstrating to them how we can achieve that particular use case that they that they mm -hmm. have in mind. Right? If there's ten bells and whistles that we have, and they're buying for buying because four or five of them are mm -hmm. very critical and top, you know, tip of the sword for their, mm -hmm. their needs, then don't waste their time going through the other five or six in mm -hmm. your Harbor tour, going through this, you know, rigid demo process, tailor it 100% mm -hmm. to what they're looking to achieve. And so it forced us to top of funnel, really dig deep into, well, how can we help? Not just, can we save you money not can we just mm -hmm. save you time but like what are we what's the outcome that we're, we're achieving here and it would be even what we would put in our our um like the labels of our invites for our discovery mm -hmm. calls so whatever they called that use case that mm -hmm. became the subject line for instance and so i say this because it traveled all the way through we were we wired together a great handoff process with our uh, CS team through a great mm -hmm. partnership over months where, I mean, it nets to down into automatic emails and different things that are surveys that are going out, but also structured fields within our programs to, you know, our CRM to make sure that we're picking up on what those use cases were and then mapping out what that journey was, you know, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days with the client to make sure they're on their way to, to reach those outcomes. But I, I go on that little detour, uh, that Harbor tour, if you will, uh, yeah. to, to drive home that these discovery calls and our overall focus should be so centric on centered on their use yeah. case, what they're trying to yeah. achieve. Outcomes. What are they trying to achieve? I mean, back to your point, if I haven't invested some time in understanding those things, then the odds of me showing them things in a demo that they care about are probably pretty low, or or I may show them a couple of things, like you said, I'm going to show them a bunch of stuff they that they don't, or perhaps they would if I had context and could show them how that could be helping them. But when I think about a good discovery meeting, I I don't take credit for this because I read it in the Challenger Sale book years ago. But there's a line, there's a, there's a piece in there, and they talk about that if during your discovery meeting, the prospect doesn't at some point look at you a little blankly and say, "I don't know the answer," because I, we or I've never thought about it that way before. You did not have a great discovery meeting. You more awesome. likely checked the same boxes that your competition was checking. And, and, and my takeaway from that is that at the end of a good discovery meeting, you will have facilitated for your prospect them being able to create at least 
the, the, the little beginnings of a vision in their own mind. Our opinion means nothing, but in their mind, they're starting to see the light. Maybe it's even a little tiny light at the end of the tunnel, but the important thing is they're seeing it for themselves. We have facilitated that. That is a great discovery uh, experience for a prospect. Let me, let me zoom out here real quick. Earlier on in the interview, I mentioned, and you, you, you talked about how you had started and built a consultant consultancy before. And again, true to form to the show, the sales consultant podcast, we really want to make sure that we understand and learn some lessons from mm -hmm. what that looks like, whether you're a revenue leader or thinking about going that direction, or if you're already a consultant in that path, maybe early days, these are always good stories to unpack, I think. So you had some notable names in your previous endeavor, mm -hmm. uh, the NBA, MTV, Warner Brothers, Disney, mm -hmm. Nike, but tell us about what that, and I know it's a different field, but what was the field that you were consulting in? Um, and why did you stop consulting? So the field, I think the, the simplest way to explain this is I was an intellectual property um, expert is, is probably right. So, so my work that I did with them on a contract basis was to help them to enforce their intellectual property rights. All right. And that typically meant counterfeit knockoff goods, for lack of Got a better word. I almost yeah. said something else. Uh, <laughs> most of which was inferior. That that was best case. Worst case, it was dangerous. There were a couple of high-profile mm -hmm. cases that Disney uh, was involved in in the 90s where completely unauthorized Disney pool, swimming pool floaty toys failed and children drowned. Oh, and Lord. And so, of course, you know, People are like going after Disney. It's like Disney had nothing to do with this stuff, and 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 but so they, you would be but brought they, in as the expert. But they still don't want those. that. Not on something like that. What I would do is I was their representative out to U.S. attorney, states attorney, customs, U.S. customs. This was pre ICE when it was just U.S. customs, okay. and I was their eyes and ears out on the uh, out in the field. And, and, and doing that expertise. If the case went to court, because most of the time when these counterfeit goods were seized, and sometimes I was there helping bag warehouses full of this stuff, um, that rarely went to court. The people that were doing it saw that as just getting busted once in a while as a cost of doing business. The profit margins were as high as, as illegal drugs. And so they would just move on and disappear. Uh, they were just ghosts, right? But if it went to court, I was able to also help testify. Um, but I've helped write federal search warrants. I've assisted the FBI and, and all of that. I've been on raids. It was very interesting type of work. The reasons that I ultimately got out of it, um, and, and it was very interesting work. I mean, I had fun. I know, it sounds so like it, yeah. Honestly. I got free tickets to NBA games and free admission <laughs> to Disney World too. It didn't suck. Um, but there, there were two things happening. Number one, I was doing this in the mid and late 90s and more and more of the work the, the 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 tracking and the work that I was doing was going online and it was becoming a very different type of enforcement um, that didn't necessarily need the same sorts of field expertise. Number two, just on a very personal note, my kids were getting older and it was the type of work where I might get a phone call from Nike and have to be on a plane to support them in another city the next day. And when your kids are little, it's a little, it's a little easier to get away with that. But as they start getting older and they have games and they have nice. concerts and they have Where's Dad? Where's Dad? I remember NBA, right? NBA Finals, 95. I remember sitting watching the game, and depending on the outcome of the game, I was either on my way to Chicago or Salt Lake City. And and I'm like calling, I was in St. Louis. I'm calling TWA, you know, uh, getting on a flight. 
and that was a lot of what drove it as well is just trying to find something that was was going to be a little more conducive to raising a family well i mean it's you reached a point of success i think you had employees or other contractors that you had worked uh, working under 1099 yeah because we would sometimes it would require having like for example during the nba finals mm -hmm. uh we would put teams out on the street that would have an nba legal representative a u.s marshal somebody there with expertise wow. and right because you can imagine something like nba finals just the the amount of counterfeit product being sold on every street corner um from the arena moving outwards it was it was sometimes a very large thing to sweep all that up and clean all that up but again we were working with law enforcement legal representatives of the nba and then i was providing you know my my people for that part and so the there there's some lessons there uh mm -hmm. if there was one lesson that you're taking with you into this new venture revenue flywheel mm -hmm. what's what's the top lesson that you think is most applicable take care of your customers which may sound very obvious but the reason for success then and reason for success that that i've seen so far in this is people talk to each other competitors like oakley and ray-ban in that world we just described talk to each other i got business because i took care of my clients i put them first they knew that i did I, i'll never forget the day my phone rang and a woman named Catherine was on the other end she was uh, not chief counsel but she was up there for mba properties because it was the first time that i didn't go out looking for business she had heard about me from bob ogden at walt disney and was calling me on his recommendation right that was a great moment and and so but that would not happen and then the work that i'm doing now the projects that i did this year that really kicked off the business all came from within my network because people trusted me they knew my work ethic they knew my expertise and they trusted me to recommend me to people um that uh, in one case, what one of them was one of the angel investor, one of the angel investors in a company said they they really need your help, right? I mean, that's that's pretty personal. That was his yeah. money on the line, right. and um, so so I really think that's a lot of I do. I work very hard to take care of customers. I work very hard to practice what I preach, if you will, in terms yeah. of understand your customer, spend the time bringing value to that relationship. Um, and I don't want people to misinterpret the word relationship there. If you happen to make friends with a prospect, or I mean, I have some customers that that I sold to years and years ago. One guy, multi-million dollar uh, software contract, and he was IT director at a great big uh, investment bank in New York City. Years later, we're still really good friends. I haven't sold him anything in two decades. So, I mean, it happens sometimes. But people are really looking for a couple of key things in my experience. Number one, are you authentic? Nobody has time for anything less. Your patience or tolerance. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Number two, are you a serious individual? And by mm -hmm. that, do you have the acumen that you're bringing value to that conversation? And number three, are you teaching them or empowering them or showing them a way to do something critical that they haven't been able to figure out for themselves? If you can fulfill those needs for people, you're going to more often than not be able to do business with them. That's what they okay. want. And earn those referrals. I, I I try to tell folks that you know the, the occasional conversations I have with folks like, how'd you get into consulting? What's your, mm -hmm. you know, what was your jump off point? With some advice, work for the referrals, and the and the revenue will come. You know, mm -hmm. in the ideal state you want to be at in this business is where uh, the proof is in the pudding, and people can sing your mm -hmm. praises. Uh, you are your product, right? And in, in, in a lot of ways, yeah. And so oh, that's a have... great way to put it. Mm -hmm. You are your product. Yeah, there's there's no fingers to point.
Very good. <laughs> like, well, I, I promised the audience that we would unpack your framework. Uh, so sure. take us home with your customer journey enablement framework. Mm -hmm. how, how would you break that down in the last couple of minutes here? So the first way that I look at it is is really, I'm going to call them pillars, right? Okay. So, 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 so four pillars that really establish what's going on. The first is what is your methodology? Your methodology might be something like, I'm going to use a really old one so we don't give anybody free advertising here. Solution selling, right? That one's been gone. It's been, if it's still out there, it probably shouldn't be. Um, but that was like one of the, you know, with the, the OGs of sales yeah, methodology. No, exactly. But yeah. but but a good sales methodology that's worth the title, and if it's implemented well, is going to bring the kinds of discovery and business-oriented conversations that we've been talking about. It's going to improve forecasting accuracy because when you're aligning to your customer, I'm not saying you're giving up control of the sale, very different, but when you're aligning to your customer and you're collecting inputs that show you where they are in their decision process, your forecasting is a lot more accurate than the typical, um, hey, mm, I think they're in stage three, right? <laughs> or I need them to close this quarter. So they're in stage five. Um, anyway, so, so methodology, pillar number one. Number two, what is your sales process? I don't use those words interchangeably. Yeah. They are very different to me. Yep. And process is critical, again, to be a, that it's aligned with your buyers and your customers. They may be buyers or right in the sales cycle, your customers in the CS cycle, but whatever, be aligned with them. And here's the kind of thing I mean by that. I hit on it a little bit when I was talking methodology, but what, what are those auditable, repeatable, expected customer inputs that sales and CS should be collecting if they're doing things the way we've been talking about. And how is that being applied to the process? How is that being applied to the resources that are being given to that seller or to that CS team to pass along to the customer, right? So what does your process look like? And how is that an outward view, an outward looking process? It shouldn't be our sales process. It should be the sales process how and how buy. are we aligning with our buyers, yeah. how they buy. Exactly. Um, the third thing, and this is a little bit broad, and that is what I'm going to call tools. Uh, we, you, you, we, we could break it down into two categories, but to me, tools might be battle cards. Yeah. Yep. It could be something like we talked about the third party competitive intelligence or win loss analysis. That's a great tool. It could even be yep. a software tool like conversational intelligence, which we didn't have time to get into that. To me, conversational intelligence, one of the best things to ever come along for sales and enablement. Um, but that those are the tools. So what are the right tools and how are they integrated and how are they actually, again, enabling sellers and customer success and, and renewal reps to talk to the customer in their language and think about things they care about. That's tools. And then how are we also measuring that? You got to be able to measure uh, to see if you're on the right track with what you're training people to do and asking them to do. And then the fourth piece that probably really just covers it all is coaching. Coaching in sales is not pipeline reviews. That's not often That's understood, nope. but it's not, yeah. right? I'm glad we agree on that. Yep. And and the challenge is sales leaders. I mean, I can I'm sympathetic. I've been there. I was one for a long time. We're are already asked and tasked, I should say, with so many things that they're doing and it's only gotten worse. You know, how about those 70 fields in the CRM that, that your right. team's not filling out. Right. Uh, but so how do you make sure coaching's happening? Two things have to be as part of your enablement framework. One, teach them how to coach. If you're not doing leadership enablement for revenue enablement, excuse me, revenue leaders, 
yeah. and go to market leaders, then don't expect them to know how to go be effective leaders and coaches if you're not investing in them. Number two, do you have an actual coaching framework in place that goes back to what I said before, that can also be tracked and measured? It's such an old, worn out phrase, especially in sales. We treasure what we measure, blah, blah, blah. But it's true. If you don't have that coaching framework, you can, I'll go into a client. This happened a couple of times this year. You ask them, do you have a coaching culture here? Oh yeah, we do, we do, we do. But then you can't find any evidence that anybody's been doing any in recent times. And I, and I think it's because people sincerely want to coach. They understand the importance of coaching. They probably do believe in a coaching culture, but you got to have some enablement and some measurement in place to make sure it's happening. So I yeah. build around those four pillars, which gives us a lot of flexibility and a lot of different, you know, whether the size of your company, who your customer segment is, how large is your TAM, all of that. Um, but those are the, those four pillars rarely change. Well, and yeah, I, one of the first questions I ask you is, you know, enablement, just a fancy word for training. And I love how you bring it home and you don't even bring training into the conversation in the framework. You call it coaching because again, mm -hmm. training and coaching, two different things fundamentally mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, the, the time investment and the acumen that's needed mm -hmm. for coaching, uh, it can be a, it has been a, a, a mm -hmm. podcast interview a discussion in itself uh, yeah. many times, yeah. you know, because it's, Oh, I left it. I'm sorry, Derek. I left yeah. that skills. We won't get into that, but that was the other one. I want to make sure. That, so, so there are skills that have to be trained as well. You just reminded me of that. That's okay. the other pillar. So when you say skills, are you saying for yeah. the enablement person, the, the the manager, the individual, you this all the whole full stack? Well, again, this th this is a framework and a strategy. I use a concept called strategy mapping to, to actually map enablement at the highest level back to revenue outcomes. Okay. And, and so the skills are going to vary depending, are you a CSM? Are you right. a BDR? Are you a salesperson? But we all have skills that need to be reinforced, sometimes learned fresh. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about skills. And that, that, that is probably the closest in my framework that you get to what most people would consider core training activity. And, and your question, yes, it's also enabling leadership. We, we can't, um, you know, we, we can't expect them to figure it out on their own, especially frontline leaders who very often were great sellers that got promoted. Fundamentally, that's very the different root cause job. issue. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And they really, they, they deserve our investment in them to help them understand how to beat. And it's not just for big transition. companies. I feel like that's the thing that we want to drive home too. even mm -hmm. small or smaller organizations need to have a heightened focus on management enablement as well, because mm -hmm. it, in big organizations, I'm sure you're familiar with this. You've worked from some of the biggest companies and, and, mm -hmm. and consulted some of the biggest companies they have, uh, or they have part of their training teams or their enablement teams are, they have tracks they take managers mm -hmm. through that mm -hmm. are even before they become a manager or there's a track you might have to complete. Yeah. And then as a manager, then you're the first year you're going down a, a track. I, I was at Dell, I was at Verizon, very similar culture where, you know, management has its own enablement track, if you will, mm -hmm. on cohort groups, the whole nine. But when you get into smaller organizations where you might have one BDR manager, you're not going to have cohorts. It's kind of hard mm -hmm. to, you know, have full on learning paths and tracks for, you know, in, in one individual. Uh, and if that's maybe the for the next three to five years foreseeable, you might only have one BDR manager. You might only have one, you know, director of sales. Uh, mm -hmm. But incorporating these enablement, you know, strategies that we talk about for our frontline, but for our managers, I think mm -hmm. it all 
falls down if we don't give the manager the proper enablement. And to assume that just because they were a leader, effect, you know, an effective leader at another organization doesn't mean that they've been through some of the fundamentals and the, the trainings of, and gotten these tools, yeah, like the, the approaches of coaching. So mm -hmm. I'm with you 110%. I that was I had to do a lot of self-teaching at points of my career as a manager mm -hmm. because it just wasn't is part of the organizational culture and, and, and strategy. Um, but other times where you're working for companies that have a phenomenal focus on leaders. And I think that's what makes a big difference. We don't need less managers. We just need better managers out there. I agree. In my experience, even companies that are in that 300 to a billion dollar range aren't doing leadership enablement. Um, and, and, and if they are, they're probably not focused on what are the specific skills that a go-to-market leader needs that are maybe even different from a leader of engineers or a leader mm -hmm. of finance folks or that sort of thing. Because that's the other thing that I have found is it's really layers. Even in companies that have a well-developed L&D organization, they have the, you know, it's, it's, I mean, that is a sort of a, um, a byproduct of success and a certain amount of revenue that you can invest or people do invest. But is that L&D team really understand what's going on in a frontline sales leaders world and how does enablement work with them to again it's kind of that last mile take what they're doing but then also make sure that it's a it, that the sales leaders are able to use it and apply it you know every day and that a lot of times again takes some time in, in the sales yourself to to help figure that out so it's a great partnership enablement and lnd should be working together on that Thank you for listening to another episode of the Sales Consultant Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, it would go a long way if you were to write a short review on the listening app of your choice.